Well, good morning. And contrary to what Kip just said, this might be a mess. But I am really glad that you're here. Those of us in the room, those of you joining us online, uh, so grateful that you're with us every week from wherever you're coming from. Uh, what you may or may not know about me, and this sermon isn't really about me, but I want to start off this way, is that when you talk about temperament or a disposition or personalities, and I know there's all the tests, the Myers-Briggs and the DISC and the Strength Finders and the Enneagrams, and I've got so many ESPN numbers and, and all stuff, all messed up. So this is what I know about myself. I, I don't have all the technical terms, but when it comes to disposition or personality or, or just temperament, my natural bent, my default mode is in the area of fun. I, I want things to be upbeat. I, I like to celebrate I want joy. I want happy endings on everything. I, I, I like humor. I like adventure. I want to live. That's how I am. Now, some of you who have more degrees and more knowledge than me would say, he's probably using all of that humor and adventure and fun as a crutch. He's covering something up. It's co coping mechanisms. And fine, go ahead in your morose state of mind. Go ahead and analyze me that way. And we could spend hours talking about, okay, well, is that a, a, a function of, of, of nature or nurture? And I don't know. There's been that discussion for years. All I know is this. I know myself well enough that that is my default mode. That is my bent. That is what I lean toward. That is what I long for. And that's the way it's been my entire life. Now, whether you say, well, that's because your childhood or your whatever. Listen, I want to show you a picture of when I was one and a half years old. It's me and my brother and my sister. I'm the little guy on the right <laughs> with my mouth wide open. They didn't have to ask me to smile. Mom said, this is the way... I was like the incarnation of happiness as a baby. When I was born, I was 9 pounds, 10 ounces. I came out. To me, it was a water slide. Woohoo! What's next? I mean, this is great. That's how I... You see all the pictures when I'm a little kid. I'm just... Yeah, it's just the way it is. So you understand that when that's my disposition, when that's my bent, when that's my default mode, and then I read a verse like this found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I'm only about half good with that verse. <laughs> the other half, I'm like, seriously? No. We have to weep? That's what Grant Fishbook's all about. I mean, let, let him do that part of the, the, the scripture. Let, let, me, let me do the other part. And, and you know, like, we want to laugh. We want to party. We want to have a good time. And the reality is that sometimes in life, the party shirt has to come off. Because sometimes in life, the most appropriate response is not fun. It's grieving. And it's sorrow. And we've been in this series looking at selected psalms. And you see that there are some psalms that are joyful. And part, like two weeks ago when Pastor Brian preached on Psalm 100. That's my psalm. You know, shout for joy to the Lord. Sing joyful songs. I love those kind of things. You know, where Psalm talks about his love endures forever and great is the Lord. I love those. But there are also these psalms called the psalms of lament, these sad songs. I think back to that old Elton John song about sad songs. You know, turn them up. There's, when all hope is gone, sad songs say so much. Just these sad songs. The, the Hank Williams, you know, there's a tear in my beer kind of psalms that, that are kind of like not so joyful. And today we're going to look at one of those psalms. Today we're going to look at a psalm of lament, and it's a sad, sad psalm. In fact, some would say the psalm that we look at today is the saddest of all the psalms, all 150 in the book of Psalms. It is like the emotional and spiritual nadir of the book of Psalms. 
We're going to be looking at Psalm 88 today. If you want to turn in your Bible or your tablet or your device there, we're going to look at that. And I want to start off looking at kind of the preamble to Psalm 88 and then talk about who wrote it a little bit, and then we'll get into the psalm. The preamble starts off this way when it says a song. It just starts off, it's, this is a song. It should have said, this is a sad song. This is a very, very sad song. But it's a song nonetheless. It's to be sung. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Now, six weeks ago when we started this series, Pastor Kip hit just briefly on the Sons of Korah. A few years back, I did a whole sermon on Korah's rebellion and the redemption of his line in the Sons of Korah. The Sons of Korah, this, this group of men, this lineage from Korah, wrote at least 11 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. So this is one of those from the Sons of Korah. And it's for the director of music. So they're saying, okay, let the, the music director know this one's for you. According to, and this is an interesting thing, I don't even know how to pronounce this. According to Mahaleth Leonoth. Now, in some of your Bibles, you'll notice there's a little footnote, a little asterisk or something about that. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it says this possibly could be the title of, like, sing this according to this song, to this tune. And the title could be The Suffering of Affliction. It's a cheery little tune. When it's titled The Suffering of Affliction, some of you are old enough to remember that educational program called Hee Haw. They sing this song, gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. That, that's the tune we want to sing this to is what he's saying. And then on top of that, it goes on and says a maskil or a maskil, which is a, a music notation, they believe. And then it says who wrote, wrote this song of He-Man the Ezraite. Right there, you've got me. You got a guy named He-Man in the Bible. That's like Conan the Barbarian. We got He-Man the Ezraite. I'm like, tell me more about this He-Man. Well, I mean, that is so cool that we've got He-Man. Now, probably in the Hebrew, it's probably pronounced Haman, but that sounds more Jamaican. I like He-Man the Ezraite. And you've got to think, you know, what is this guy like? Well, the cool thing is that in the early to mid-80s, archaeologists actually found a picture of He-Man. I've got it for you. Some of you remember. 1983. Does anyone remember He-Man, the masters of the universe? All right, all right, all right. So I think He-Man, the masters of the universe. That picture, that whole cartoon thing came out when I was in college my roommate, Matt, and I, we were studying to go in the ministry. We were going to be youth pastors. We also lifted weights all the time. And in the weight room, we tried to motivate each other. We we're kind of slacking. We say, come on, He-Man, you're the pastor of the universe. You got this He-Man, masters of the universe. Now, you would think this guy named He-Man, He-Man the Ezraite, if he writes the saddest of all the sad songs in the book of Psalm, he must be like the patron saint of melancholy. He must be in the exact polar opposite from where I find myself leaning in my own temperament and personality. Like, you, you just picture a guy who would write such, such a heart-gripping, uh, sad, sad song. is probably, probably from some goth subculture and listens to death metal or whatever. You, your stereotype, you know, wears all black all the time, dyes hair black, you know, those kind of black eyeshadow, that, that one, you know. <laughs> I want to suggest that maybe He-Man was not like that at all. In fact, He-Man, the name, He-Man, that's right, He-Man, the name, literally means faithful, faithful. And that's going to come into play later on. In fact, I'm going to, 
I'm going to have a quiz later on, and later on I'm going to say, now, do you remember He-Man means, and you're going to say? So you already know the answer to the quiz. So just hold on to that, because that'll come up later. And I think this He-Man is a superhero in his own right. I want to tell you a little bit about He-Man, something you may not have known, and then we'll get into the psalm that he writes. He-Man is a musician, which is a good thing. I mean, if you're writing songs that go in the Bible, you ought to know what you're doing. He's a musician. We find this in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 31. It says, these are the men that David, David who's a musician in his own right, David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there. Now, David is a musician. He's a harp player in such a way that God uses it supernaturally. We'll look at that briefly next week. Not only that, but he's a composer. I mean, he's written the majority of the more psalms than anyone else. And he knows music. So he's a musician and he's the king. Now, when you're a king who knows music and you're going to appoint people to be musicians, you're going to look for the very best. You know what good musicians look like. You know what they sound like. You know how they, they compose. So here he is. He's not looking for just some garage band that knows three chords to play down at the spaghetti feed fundraiser. He wants the best because this is for the house of the Lord, for Yahweh. And David always wants to give the very best for the Lord. He deserves the very best. And not only in the house of the Lord, but the ark. That was like representative of the very presence of God. And so David chooses the best musicians for this highest role to to play this worship music in the very presence of God of God. Two verses later, it shows who he chooses. Verse 33, here are the men who served together with their sons. From the Kohathites, the first one, He-Man, the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. The first one is He-Man. And as you read that passage, he's not only the first one, but he is the prominent one because his associate is a guy named Asaph who wrote, uh, I think, Psalm 73 through, 70, or through 83. Asaph's a pretty uh, significant musician as well. But He-Man is over all of these musicians. He's the top musician in the house of the Lord. Not only that, you notice his lineage. He's the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the prophet of God, Samuel. Samuel, who anointed Saul as king. Samuel, who anointed David as king. That his grandfather is the prophet of God to the nation. And you got to understand this He-Man now. I mean, here he is. He's working directly for the king in the presence of God, and his grandpa is Samuel. Now, you can build a case and say, well, yeah, it's, kind of, it's all about who you know. In the music industry, it really is about who you know. And maybe, just maybe, you could say, well, he was one of Dave's faves. And so he kind of got ushered in there. Or maybe Samuel came to David, Samuel, the man of God, comes to the king and says, hey, hey, David, um, my grandson, he and his buddies have been putting this band together. Just wondering, could you give them a little shot? G- give them a break. I mean, just maybe just a weekend service or something. Just kind of give them, a, could, could you give them a shot? And yeah, you could build that case that it's like, okay, because he knew his grandpa and he knew his king and all that. But I don't think that's the case at all. Because later in chapter 15, we read this. David, the king, told the leaders of the Levites. The, the Levites are the Levitical tribe. This is the tribe that's set apart for the, the task of the temple, for God's uh, purposes. Tell the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs. To sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres and harps and cymbals. 
So he goes to this whole tribe and to their leaders and he says, you know your people better than we do. So I want you to pick the best musicians, ones that will be able to sing joyful songs, upbeat songs, the kind of songs I like, the, the celebratory songs, one that's going to have the greatest music. So they put their minds together and they think through all their brothers, all the people that are in their tribe, and who would best represent God? Who would best represent their tribe? Who would best be able to serve the king this way and to bring about the most joyful songs of all? And who do they pick? So the Levites appointed Heman. I mean, his peers recognize that he is the one. I mean, this guy is not only musically talented, it goes beyond talent. He is musically gifted, and it goes beyond gifting. He is anointed as a musician. Pretty amazing guy. But that's not where it stops. I mean, this He-Man is a superhero even beyond music. After David was king, David's son Solomon becomes king. And many of you are very familiar with Solomon, let me remind you, in 1 Kings chapter 4, this is what it says about Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, the wisdom that built the pyramids, the wisdom that had the mummification process that would allow bodies to be preserved for thousands of years, the wisdom of, he said, it's got greater wisdom than all of the east and greater the wisdom than all of Egypt. And he goes one step even farther. He says this, he was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, and wiser than, here's our guy, He-Man. Not only is he a great musician, this guy has incredible wisdom. When you're talking about someone being greater than and you lift these two names up as kind of the measuring rod by which you're measuring greatness, you're going to look for the highest number. If, you, if I were to say, this guy is the most incredible basketball player, better than anyone else, he is even better than, if he's the best, I'm choosing guys like Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, those, he's even better than them. Okay, I'm getting a blank here. If I'm thinking, this guy is like a golfer, the best golfer, better than, better than, then I'm throwing out names like Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholson. Those, I mean, okay. If I want, you guys aren't getting this. If I want to say, okay, this guy, he's like the best dancer, better than, Mikhail Baryshnikov, better than Pastor Kip. I mean, I'm going to put the very best up there. So when he's talking about Solomon's wisdom, he says he's better than putting the two wisest men in all of Israel. Ethan apparently was like the valedictorian because he comes first. But he then, he means the salutatorian. He's in the top three when it comes to wisdom. That's an amazing thing. Now, this musician who's revered by the king and his peers has wisdom second only to Ethan and Solomon. He writes this song. Now, it doesn't start off sad. It starts off actually kind of upbeat, kind of giving a picture of his own spiritual walk. In Psalm 88, verse 1, it says this. O Lord, all caps, which means Yahweh. O Lord, Yahweh. The God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you 
Turn your ear to my cry. So here he is. He is this man of God. He worships Yahweh. He trusts in Yahweh, the one who saves him. And he cries out and he prays morning and night. I mean, he is disciplined in his prayer life. So you begin to put together this composite of he-man. You begin to see what a superhero he is. I mean, you're just going to say, all right, stop. Let's collaborate and listen. Now, here's the deal. He is from this family line where his grandfather, his lineage is of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. His grandfather is Samuel the prophet. On top of that, he's a, a musician that is chosen by the king and all of his peers as the top musician. He's serving in the temple or the tabernacle before the very presence of God. He has wisdom second only to a guy named Ethan and Solomon himself. And on top of that, he is this godly man who has a disciplined prayer life. What's not to like about this guy? Everything seems to be going in his favor. He's like the most likely to succeed. He's got the world in his palm of his hand. And yet... Something happened. There was some event, some season, some chapter, something in his life. I mean, you know that that story, um, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? He-man has this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad something, event, chapter season of his life. Now see, you got to live the blues to sing the blues. He does. And so then he begins to write, while he's had everything that you could ever want for, he begins to write the saddest of all the Psalms. Now some of you might be saying, Bob, why did you pick Psalm 88? In fact, this week I, I said to one of the people on our staff, yeah, I'm preaching the saddest of the saddest Psalms this week. And her response was, well, you picked it. A lot of sympathy and grace for me around this place. And, and it's true, I did. I, in fact, this series was supposed to end last week. Pastor Kip was supposed to end this series, but I wanted to preach Psalm 88. In fact, then I thought about some next week I want to cover, so I extended it two weeks. I get to do that. So, but I wanted to preach Psalm 88 for a couple reasons. One is because Psalm 88 is not my go-to psalm. It's not how I'm wired. It's not my bent. It's not my default mode. And it's good for me to remember that not everybody approaches life the way I do. And on top of that, to recognize that some of you in this room, and some of you joining us online, you come in today hanging on by a thread. You're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And some of you come in here carrying some very, very heavy burdens, some hardships and some difficulties. And you wonder, what does God's word have to say to me in my situation? And so I chose Psalm 88 today. My friend Mike Woodruff, I thought, made an incredible metaphor analogy when he talked about the book of Psalms. He said the book of Psalms is, is kind of like a Swiss army knife. Now, now I have a, a version. This, this isn't really a Swiss army knife. It's not from Switzerland, and it's not for the army. I think it's an Alger Boy Scout knife. But you get the idea. That the whole idea is there's, there's different blades, different tools, different things. Each one has different functions. And it's amazing when you have a knife like this, all the opportunities that are at your fingertips. 
I mean, I could clear cut a small forest with this little saw. I could scrapbook like nobody's business with this little pair of scissors. I could do a pedicure with this file. I mean, I could open up a bottle of fine wine with this corkscrew. I mean, if the preaching thing doesn't work out for me, I've got this knife. (laughs) And the thing about a Swiss Army knife is that every blade is a little bit different, and they all serve a different purpose. They have a different function. They meet a different need. And Woodruff was saying, in the book of Psalms, you have different genres of Psalms and different chapters in the book of Psalms. And they're like different tools on a Swiss army knife. And maybe Psalm 88 is this blade that I never open up. And yet it's there for a purpose. And it has a reason. And I think that today for some of you, Psalm 88 may become your psalm for this season. And for some of us, there are some lessons that we can learn from this very, very sad psalm. So let's look at it. We already started off where he talks about Yahweh, the one who saves him, and, and, and how, he, uh, how he prays. Verse 3, he writes this. For my soul, the, the deepest part of who I am, My soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I am set apart. Pause right there. The word holy means set apart. The Levitical tribe was holy. It was set apart for God's purposes. To work in the tabernacle, everything was holy. It was set apart. He's been that, but he says, now I'm set apart. I'm holy for a different purpose. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Wow. Now, we have no idea what the specifics are that would cause him to write such burdensome, heavy, dark words. Maybe... Maybe he's contracted some disease because he talks about how his life's ebbing away. He's like on the, on the brink of death. And maybe, maybe that, maybe that disease is leprosy because later he'll talk about how, how he's repulsive to others, how they stay away from him. Or maybe, maybe he's just held the hand of his little daughter as she drew her final breath. And while he is physically still alive, everything inside of him has died. Or maybe this man who is revered by his peers, by the king, and by the whole nation has suffered character assassination. Slanders and rumors have ruined him. And his good name has been destroyed. Or maybe, which would not be uncommon for a genius musician, maybe he has dealt with chronic depression all his life. We don't know, and maybe that's by design. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, if we don't know what it is, we can't pigeonhole it, therefore, it relates to all of us. And maybe this is the first lesson we need to learn from Psalm 88 and from He-Man in his life. And lesson one is realistic expectations. Realistic expectations that life isn't always a party. Life doesn't always have the happy ending. It's not always upbeat, and it's not always celebratory. 
And in Scott Peck's incredible book called The, the Road Less Traveled, the very first three words of his book, you open up page one, the very first words are, life is difficult. Because sometimes we get misunderstandings and false expectations. We get this idea that, well, I became a Christian. Jesus has forgiven me for my sins and my slate is wiped clean, which is true. He's filled me with his Holy Spirit, which is true. He's given me eternal life, which is true. Abundant life, which is true. The blessed life, which is true. And we think because of all that, then never shall there ever be any difficulties that befall me. And then we hit, hit with some challenging circumstance, some hardship, some setback, some injustice, some painful season, and we begin to question, you know, well, what's the deal here, God? I, I thought that I had abundant life. I thought I had the blessed life. I thought, I thought because you lived in me, I wouldn't experience this anymore. And then we begin to come to these conclusions. Well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God doesn't live inside me because maybe this doesn't work for me. It works for everybody else, but not for me. Or, or maybe I just don't have enough faith, which some would teach that, and that's not true. Or maybe God's mad at me, or maybe he's punishing me from something I did back when I was whatever, even though he has forgiven those sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And we begin to have this idea that life should never have any hardships, and if we believe that, and then we have hardships, we come to all kinds of false conclusions about ourselves, the world, and Christianity, and God himself. See, for guys like me, we want to skip Psalm 88. We want to jump from Psalm 87 to Psalm 89. Psalm 87 ends with a line that was a song we used to sing, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. All my fountains are in you. I mean, it's a beautiful ending. This fountain of living water, this life, this flourishing, this refreshment, this, this great life. All my fountains are in you. And Psalm 89 starts with a song we used to sing 20 years ago. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I want to go from all my fountains are in you, and I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And I want to skip right over Psalm 88. That reality of the valley, the dark night of the soul. You know, Mother Teresa, some of you are familiar with this, I mean, she had given her life married to Christ and his bride, the church, as a nun. And not just that, but dedicated her life to serve the poorest of the poor on the streets of Calcutta, known worldwide. And after she passed away, um, it, it, it came out that she had written some letters to her pastor, to, to the, the father. That, and I thought... What must it be like to be the pastor of Mother Teresa? Sure glad it wasn't me. <laughs> but she would write this correspondence to this man named Reverend Michael uh, Vanderpeet. And after she died, um, he made these public. And, and he caught some criticism and some praise and all that. But this, these are the words that Mother Teresa wrote to her pastor. Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. I'm told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and the emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. 
That's Mother Teresa. See, if we get into this mindset, this idea that, well, if I just walk closely with God, if I just stay disciplined in the word, if I just keep praying, if I keep worshiping, if I keep going to church, keep serving, keep giving, all these, and those are all good. But if if I do all these things, if I'm just good enough, then somehow it's incumbent upon God to make sure that I never have any hardships in life. May I remind you that there is one who is better than you will ever be able to be. One who is better than Mother Teresa. One who is better than He-Man, the Ezraite. One who is more devoted to the Father, more disciplined in his spiritual disciplines, more worshiping God more freely, submitted more fully, and this one was referred to in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. This one, who's better than any of us could ever be, walked closer to God than any of us ever will, said to his disciples on the night before he was crucified, in this world, you will have troubles. He doesn't, he doesn't give a false hope He says, this is the realistic expectation. Life is difficult. Let's go on. He-Man writes in verse 6. He says, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. I think that all your waves. I mean, yeah, there were the waves of the Sea of Galilee, but the Mediterranean Sea, these waves that incessant just continued to come one after another after another. And it's like I get hit by one and just get my breath and I get hit with another and then another and then another day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, all your waves. And he says, Selah, let's just rest for a second. And then he goes back into it. And you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Maybe the second lesson we can get from this is this lesson of raw honesty. Here's this man of God, man chosen and appointed for the work of Yahweh in the temple who trusts in God for his salvation, and yet he talks to God, and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't try to sound spiritual to God. He doesn't give the right Sunday school answers to God. He just tells him like it is, completely unfiltered. Now listen, He-Man is not alone. In this genre of Psalms of Lament, you see this over and over again, the writers, and they will ask these questions. How long, O Lord? You know, will you forget me forever? Why do you allow the the wicked to prosper and not turn your face toward me? How long will you forget me? You know, why have you forsaken me? These questions over and over again. You see this honesty of just questioning God. He-man goes beyond questioning, though. He goes from asking questions to accusations, interrogation of God. Later you'll see exaggeration of the, of, the, of the circumstances and even sarcasm of what God is up to. It's just this unfiltered pouring out of his heart to God. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting, in a room, in a small group where someone says something and everyone's shocked, but the reality is everyone was thinking it, but no one said it. You ever been in one of those situations like, dude, yeah, we were all thinking that, but no one had, you know, like, Wow. He-Man says, I'm saying it. Because sometimes how we operate, 
as well, we get this idea, well, yeah, these are my thoughts, but I, I dare not say it because then God would know. And then God would be shocked. What? I had no idea you felt that. Seriously? What does Psalm 139 say? You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before there's a word on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Why is it that we feel like we have to, like, you know, I think these things, but I'm not going to, dare not say them. Could it be that He-Man had more trust in our God than we do? He had more trust that God could handle his truth that he feels? He has more trust that his relationship with God is more solid than just ticking God off or hurting his feelings and then it's all going to go out the window? And could it be, long shot here, but could it be that God has Psalm 88 in his holy scripture for this very purpose? Because I believe that God is sovereign enough that if Psalm 88 really bothered him, God is big enough, he could have had that somehow taken out of the Bible. That Dead Sea Scroll could have really died. That part of Scripture could have disintegrated. God's big enough. There could have been termites to eat that one. But God allows Psalm 88 to be in his holy Scripture. And why? Maybe to give us permission. Maybe to give us permission to speak with authenticity to the one who loves us so much, to the one who will never leave us or forsake us, to the one who knows our thoughts already. And maybe not just permission, but maybe to give us an example of a guy who dedicated his life to the things of God and underwent some horrific thing to where he is just so beside himself. And maybe it's not just a permission giving, and maybe it's not just an example. Maybe it's to be an expression that we can use. Maybe God put Psalm 88 in the Bible because he says, there may come some times in your, in your life, in your situations, and you don't even know what to pray. You don't even know if you should pray. And there's this little blade in here called Psalm 88. And I pray that you don't have to use it or very often. But in those times, you take that blade out and let it be used for its purpose. See, for some of you, maybe you don't need to read Psalm 88. You need to pray Psalm 88. It was a song. You need to sing Psalm 88. So here's the lesson. Life is difficult. And we can be honest with our God. But we don't stop there. Verse 13. He says, but I cry to you. I cry to you for help, O Lord. Yahweh. I am that I am. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Here's a little quiz for you. He-Man. What does He-Man mean? Faithful. And maybe it wasn't just a name. And maybe the third lesson is this faithful commitment that he does not lose his faith. 
Oh, he's angry and he's accusing God. He's confused and he's complaining over and over again. I mean, he's, he's distraught, he's disturbed, he he's, has no idea what's going on here. But he comes back to God. And maybe he knows that as bad as his circumstance, as bad as the situation is, there is one thing that could make it worse. And that is if he abandoned the only one that can help him, the one that he trusts for salvation, if he would walk away and go through this valley alone. And so he continues to pray, and he prays through these difficulties. After World War II, there was a cellar where Jewish people hid to save their lives from the Nazis. And after the war was over and they were free to go, in this one cellar, there was an inscription found on the wall that these Jewish people had inscribed into this wall and probably read every day. And it was these words, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when he is silent. The faithful commitment God, I don't like this. I don't know what you're doing. I'm angry. I'm ticked off. I'm mad at you, but I'm not leaving. King Geyer, in his incredible book, The North Face of God, that just talks about when it feels like you've got this cold, dark side of God and he's nowhere to be found, he writes these words, no matter how dark the night, how dense the clouds, or how total the eclipse, the sun is still at the center of our solar system, shining. And so is God. You know, one of the reasons that Psalm 88 is one of the saddest, or the saddest of all the psalms, is because usually, and we'll see this next week, usually in the psalms of lament, there's this complaint, there's this pouring out, there's all this, and then it turns at the end. But you, O oh God, are faithful. But you are the one who rescues me. But I continue to trust and praise you. Psalm 88 never turns. It stays down there. It's one of only two psalms that never turn. Psalm 88 and Psalm 39. And real quick, let me just show you the ending of Psalm 39. We won't go into the whole psalm, but at the end, this is how he ends. Look away from me. He's talking to God. Look away from me. Turn away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. At the end of Psalm 88, we won't cover all the rest of the verses. You have taken my companions, my loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Hold on to those two endings. Every time we take a trip to Israel, when we're in Jerusalem, one of the sites that we visit is a church called the Church of St. Peter in Galigantu, which means the rooster crow or the cock crow. And I've talked about this. It's where they believe Caiaphas's house was. And I've talked about this church, talked about the door with Jesus and the pointing finger. You go in the church and there's a sanctuary. Underneath the sanctuary, there's a chapel. Underneath the chapel, there's a pit. There's a dungeon. The Byzantine Christians were absolutely convinced this was where Caiaphas's house was. And this dungeon, this pit, is where Jesus spent that last night, after coming from the Garden of Gethsemane, across the Kidron Valley, in that pit. And we go down, they've cut stairs down into this pit, and we get our group down there. It used to be in the old days we could turn off all the lights. But in that pit, we read Psalm 88. And I would challenge you this week to read Psalm 88 through the filter of Jesus on the night before he is crucified. And you see how 
incredibly relevant. He quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. It's not a far stretch to think that he quoted Psalm 88 in the pit. Because as I mentioned before in Isaiah 53, the suffering Savior, it says, he, Jesus, this one that was being predicted, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, the most important lesson that we can learn is that Jesus identifies with us in the darkness. He identifies with us in our darkness. You know those two psalms that end very darkly. Psalm 39, turn your face away from me. Psalm 88, all my companions have left me in in darkness is my closest friend. The psalmist felt that way. But Jesus experienced that at the deepest level because the Father did turn his face away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of his friends did abandon him. And he had the darkness of the grave, of tomb, of death itself. And he could have at any moment walked away from that darkness, walked away from that experience. But he stood in there. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorn and shame. Why? What's that joy set before him? It's us. And if Jesus did not abandon us in his darkest hour, why would we ever think that he will abandon us in our darkest hour? He was abandoned by God so that he could be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He experienced darkness so that you wouldn't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. He would be with us. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, for some of you today, this Psalm 88 was written for such a time as this in your life because you feel like he meant and Jesus experienced it and he's given us this song knowing he identifies with us in the dark night of our soul the deepest valleys when we ask the questions when we wonder will we ever see the light of dawn And today I want to finish, and I just want to pray. And I invite you to stand here. And those of you online, you don't have to stand, but I just want to pray. Go ahead and stand. Because for some of you right now, the idea of soaring on wings like eagles, that is so far. (coughs) Running and not fainting, are you kidding me? Walking and not, you're barely crawling today. And Jesus crawls with you. Father, I pray. I pray for those who are in a season right now. Something has happened. They're going through something that doesn't seem like it will ever end. To know that that you are the God who saves them. That you are the God who will never leave them or forsake them. 
And even when they feel like they've been abandoned, even when they can't see your goodness, to know that they can be honest with you, they can pour out their hearts, and they can stay crying out to you, clinging to you, and never have to walk through this darkness alone. Jesus, I pray that they would sense your presence as they walk through this time. And I do pray, God, that we would have Psalm 88 be the holy, living word of God that breathes life into us when we feel completely dead. So we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Not the most cheery sermon, (laughs) but it's one that I think we need in our world. Hey, those of you online, thanks for joining us. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.